0: As many of you know, we recently published three episodes from the new podcast called At the Table. This is produced by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I had the privilege to help with this project as a consultant. After publishing the recent podcast on leading saints, those working at the church on this project were so impressed by the results and the feedback from the audience that they asked if we could share more episodes. Enjoy. And don't forget to send your feedback by taking the survey for each individual episode, which we will link in the show notes. Welcome to the At the Table podcast, a production of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. On this podcast, we aim to explore how church leaders can more effectively understand and utilize the voices of young single adults in their wards and stakes. You'll hear from experienced church leaders and young single adults about best practices, inspiring stories, and encouraging methods to help us all follow Jesus Christ together. I'm Jared Pearson, and I have the pleasure to be a, a co-host on the At-To-Table podcast. I'm currently in Provo, Utah, but I was born and raised in Livermore, California, right outside San Francisco, California. I ended up serving my mission in New Hampshire, uh, the New Hampshire-Manchester Mission, and some of my favorite things are playing pickleball, tennis, or staying inside, playing some board games, or reading books as well. And I'm just really excited to be part of this.
1: My name is Kami Castrijon. I'm originally from Colombia, I was born and raised there, and I moved to the United States when I was 16. I moved to the big city of New York, and that's where I joined the church. And then soon after, I served my mission in Riverside, California. Then after my mission, I moved to Utah, and I've been here ever since. I love dancing, especially salsa, hiking, baking. And I am thrilled to be part of this amazing podcast at the table.
0: Welcome to the At The Table podcast. Uh, I'm Jared Pearson. I'm here with Cammie. Hi. And we're really excited today to be having Wendy Ulrich on our show. And we'd like to start with a little bit of introduction on Wendy's behalf.
2: I don't know what's the most relevant here. I'm a psychologist by training and uh, I've served on the General Relief Society Council for a couple of years. Uh, Retired from that in August and um, taught at BYU Written some books. So right now teaching institute down for a YSA stake in Provo and really enjoying that. My husband and I do that every week, half for a couple of well, several years now. The whole time COVID's been running in before. So <laughs> that's where we are. And met Jared in uh in in one of those institute classes and wards down there. So nice to nice to see you again, my friend
0: and let me just say that was a wonderful institute class and probably still is i need to attend again Um, but today i think we're talking a little bit about apathy and the ysas and how to kind of tackle that what it looks like and i just want to pose the question first to you wendy if is there apathy in the ysa setting or in ysa wards uh among both participants or leaders or both or what what have you seen especially in your assignments to award down in Provo?
2: You know, the award the that we've been involved with, the stake we've been involved with, um, are some of the most remarkable young adults. I, I think I I know uh, the, the two people sitting in in front of me on the screen that I can see a little of anyway um, being among them. So I, you tell me, what do you think about that? Uh, you're, you're more engaged in that In that group, with that audience, you've got more connections than I do. Um, What do you think the issue is there?
1: I also have been surrounded by great friends and I've been part of great wards and stakes. Um, At the same time, I have also noticed a lot of those great friends kind of step away from the church or um, they just have no interest in being a part of the church anymore. And I feel like a lot of the things that I've gathered from them are just social, social things that are going on. The majority of them have felt like a lot of their, a lot of the things that they want to do, that society is offering them um, are conflicting with their beliefs. And um, they just decide not to have that conflict anymore and they want to do things that feel right for them. And they decide that in their own words, that the church or the gospel is something that has served them, but not anymore. Um, That's what I've noticed in, in my experience with my friends and in my community.
0: I've had a really similar experience. I'm typically, I feel like I've had a very, pleasant experience in wards and different activities, and I've been surrounded with wonderful people who make me feel really included. On the flip side, um, I've had the opportunity to both serve in callings where I'm in contact with people or just friends um, who are a little bit disenfranchised with both going to church and being actively engaged in a lot of church-type things. Um, this could be in the form of they they get a calling and they start doubting, like, why is this even a calling? And I'll be honest. Sometimes I doubt it when it's like your calling is to empty the second trash can on the right. And I say, oh, that's interesting. Did you get set apart though? Was that pleasant? And they said, yeah, that's, it was wonderful. It's a little bit weird. And I'm like, yeah, I understand that. On the other hand, sometimes it's, you know, my parents have been really involved in this. Um, I'm doing it to make them proud, but I'm sort of not feeling it. Um, And that's a lot more frequent of I had it in the past but it's not really doing anything for me now, like what Cammie was saying. And that's more frequent than I feel like finding someone in the church to have problems with. It's just not finding enough there to begin with. And at least that, that's how it, I'd address apathy in the church rather than like um, antagonism inside as well.
2: Yeah, I think that's helpful to, to think about, Um when have been the times in our lives when we felt most committed and engaged with something and one are the times when it no longer really seems to be serving us. A lot of times, um, there are, I, I think there's a whole group of people for whom the apathy is really sort of about fear, uh, fear of getting really engaged. Maybe I, I don't really feel like I'm capable of handling this or, you know, I, I don't really find, it. um, Uh, I'm a little nervous about really getting involved, but I think more often what I hear the two of you describing is more of a feeling of this isn't really working for me. It doesn't really seem like I'm as engaged as I want to be. I'm not finding meaningful, purposeful things to do as part of my church experience that really help me live my values in ways that matter to me or build relationships or develop talents or gifts that are important to me. And that's where I think good leadership can really come in and be really important. Um, the, that if we as leaders, I think sometimes we're trying to sort of spare people. We recognize how busy young single adults can be and uh, how important their education is or their work or their relationships or things that you know that they're doing. So we're trying to maybe uh, not get them too busy because we don't want to overwhelm people. But on the other hand, sometimes there's just not enough to do to make it feel like a meaningful experience at church. And then people kind of give up. Um, we know a little bit about what helps people feel committed and involved with something and gives us a sense of, of purpose in our lives, of well-being in our lives. And in a lot of ways, the church is great at that stuff. Uh, we know if people are getting clearer about their values and what matters to them, what they care about, what what, they really want out of life, and they're seeing ways to live those values. That's one of the things that gives us a sense of meaning and purpose. And the church can do a fantastic job of, of giving people a sense of what the purpose of life is, what the plan is, what values will help us find happiness and satisfaction in life. But when those are not aligning particularly well, that can certainly be uh, one of the issues that can begin to create a feeling of I don't know this if this is really what I want, and if this is if these values are really consistent with what I care about, what I believe. So helping people get clearer about what do you want out of life, what what does matter to you, can be an important step in addressing that particular issue. Um, have you ever had anybody kind of ask you questions about, you know, what do you want out of life and, and thought about what it, what matters to you, what values are important to you? If somebody were to ask you that, do you feel like you could define that pretty clearly at this point, or are you still exploring that? Where are you on those kinds of issues?
1: Because of the knowledge of the gospel that I received a few years ago I have a clearer understanding of what my goals are, what my dreams are, the things that I want to achieve in life. And for me, the gospel is the most beautiful thing that has ever happened to me. Um, It came at an age that um, was a really hard age. Um, I'm an immigrant, and I was 16. And um, my parents had separated at the moment, and I was new to the United States didn't speak the language and had a lot of questions about my worth, my purpose and, um, everything about my life. And that's when I met the missionaries were when the gospel came into my life and it gave, gave me all of these answers that I didn't really know I was looking for. Um, and I have held on to those truths and, um, to all the things that I've learned in the church, and the gospel, all these years. And it has given me a new perspective and a new purpose in life that I don't know how I lived my life without all of these truths and, and knowledge. So yes, if, if someone were to ask me, I, I would be able to tell them um, what my dreams and goals are because of the knowledge that I have now.
2: Kenny, thank you for sharing that. That, That's really helpful to me and inspiring to me. Um, I think sometimes the apathy can come when we've lived with these things all of our lives and we haven't really explored them for ourselves. We haven't really seen the contrast that you've experienced. And uh, I'm delighted to know that as you came out of a a different place from, from taking the church sort of for granted, that you found a lot of answers here and direction and help. And whether we've been in the church all our lives or we're just finding it for the first time, that's the kind of experience every one of us needs to have at some level. Uh, I remember as a young woman, you know, I think 13 years old coming into a Sunday school class for the first time and sort of coming out of primary, not very long and thinking, is there anything new here? Is there anything I haven't heard before? Is there any reason to sort of hang around here at the ripe old age of probably 13 and um And coming into a Sunday school class with a really dynamic teacher who knew the gospel really well and taught me things I'd never really heard or experienced. And I thought, I I want to know more about this and began to really do a search of my own. So sometimes it takes, you know, it takes a, a really good teacher, a really good leader to sort of wake our brains up and inspire us to feel like some of the questions we have in life are being answered here we can find direction. We can find opportunities here to, to find um, values and and goals and dreams that are important to us. I love uh, Whitney Johnson, who talks about, she's got a book on dating your dreams. She talks about dreams and that it's, it's not just, you don't just automatically know what you want to be when you grow up. You know, you have to sort of figure that out as you go. And as you, she talks about the importance of, Sort of exploring, you know, our dreams and trying things and, and figuring these things out because we have experience with them. And I think that's one of the things that uh, college and, and work are so helpful with is giving us an opportunity to uh, experience ourselves in different settings to get the skills that we need to be able to be successful at something really goes a long way in deciding, yeah, this is what I want to do. You can't really know you want to be a concert pianist until you've got enough skill to be a really good pianist, and that takes a long time. And I think we forget sometimes that the gospel and the church can be the same way. We have to get good at it in order to really feel like I I can do this, and I love it when I do. When When I'm engaged here and I'm involved with this, um, I begin to realize that this is this this is exciting. This there's stuff here that matters to me. I am learning. I am growing. I'm developing some skills that help me feel confident that I can live the gospel and I can be a disciple of Christ in a meaningful way. Um, what about you, Jerry? Any thoughts about that? What, what? What's helped you stay, I, I know you have a deep enthusiasm and love for the gospel. Where where did that come from for you?
0: Yeah, I, w- I would attribute a lot of my belief to both my parents, but I also, I don't know, I, there's two talks that actually come to mind, two very different concepts. Um, one by Elder Bednar recently is when he talked about the phrase, when thou art converted. Um, yeah, yeah from Jesus talking to his disciples. And it's interesting because when you think about who's going to be converted, it's um, someone who literally walked with the saviors and saw miracles, right? And is taught right from the mouth of the savior in their own language. But he hits them with this phrase of when thou art converted. And I've given that a lot of thought. And um, it wasn't too long ago that I actually took a religion course from um, Garrett Dirkmont. At BYU and he talked about a time where Brigham Young decided it's time for everyone to get baptized again. Or maybe it was Joseph. I don't remember. That that's that's it's the foggy part of my memory. Yeah. Probably Brigham Young, if I had to guess. Yeah. But and I started thinking about it. I'm like, these people have already been through all these hardships and they're still around. Yet they needed to have their own form of conversion. And in a similar sense, I would say that. A lot of my testimony came from my own choices of where I should go. And now there's a lot of leaders in my life that have caused me to grow. Um, There's bishops, there's young men's leaders, there's young women's leaders, there's parents, there's friends, there's everyone in between. But there also came a point where I kind of had to answer the questions for myself. And a lot of the time that was when... I had a friend that gave me a question that was really hard. And I said, why do you even believe? And you really had to stop and say, why do I believe? And it came through study. It came through faith. It came through a desire to know. Um, and really reading and, and learning in that way. And, you know, I think one of the biggest things um, that helped me at least was I was sitting there and I was having a really hard time with the question that I had. I don't remember what it was even, but I was sitting there and a thought came to my mind and I can only attribute it to the spirit, which was, and what if it is true? What, what what would you change about your life? What, what would you do if it was true?
2: What a great I question. Said, well,
0: what, what what do you mean? What if it is true? It either isn't, it isn't. It's like, what if it is, will it change your life? Will it, affect the way you move? Will affect the way you think? I had to pause there and say, I think it would. And only when I wanted it to be true and I lived as if it were true, did I receive my answers and receive a conversion, which I hope is lasting and I know is deeply impactful in my life.
2: You know, what's so interesting to me in that story, Jared, is um, that question that you were looking at, which is, what do I want? And uh, I, I noticed that when when God, when Christ, when a messenger from Him is speaking to someone, how often Jesus asks people? How often um, uh, messengers in, in in various settings, with the brother of Jared, or with Nephi, or with the, the apostles, ask basically, "What do you want? What do you desire? What what do you what do you want out of this?" And that question is really a compelling one. Um, I remember seeing a little magnet on my sister's refrigerator one day that said, uh, don't let what, you, I'm paraphrasing, but don't let what you want most get in the way of what you, or what you want now, get in the way of what you want most. Um, and and that's kind of the challenge is when I'm looking at the question of what do I want, that is not a trivial question. You know, what I want right now is dinner, but uh, that's probably not the most compelling thing to go, you know, build my life around. Um, And so we have to kind of look at that question very seriously, not just what do I want right now, what do I want lately, but what do I want most? What's really important to me? And it sounds like you kind of had to grapple with that question, and so have I. And uh, this is the time in life when we are young single adults, we, we have to continue to grapple with that question throughout life. But this is when that question begins to become really compelling, I think, what do I want? Um, what matters to me? What do I care about? What do I want to do with my life? Uh, Abraham Maslow, a great psychologist, said it's, it's not normal to know what you want, that it's a rare and difficult psychological achievement. And that was really refreshing to me to find that quote, because I think it isn't easy to decide what we really want most. I can sort of figure out what I want in the next 10 minutes maybe, but what do I really want to do with my life? What do I want my life to stand for? What do I really believe is important? It's not such an easy thing to just uh, come up with off the top of your head. It takes experience and pondering and reflection and thought. And yet I think that's in many ways the question we are trying to answer in in our mortal experience more than any other. Is what do I really want? What do I really care about? Do am I going to spend my life and my my limited time on this earth um, wanting fun? That's a good thing to want, but is that really the most important thing to me? Is it wanting to have uh, good debates? Is it wanting to be a fantastic um, economist? Is it is it really important to me to be connected with other people in meaningful ways? Um, Do I want some kind of experience with with the transcendent realities of nature or of of, a sense of God in my life? What is it that I want and that will give meaning and purpose to my life? And uh, that's a question that's worth asking each other. It sounds like friends have asked you that question. Leaders can ask us that question. We need to be asking ourselves that question more than once in our lives. What is it that really matters to me? Because that will provide guidance for us for, for the rest of our lives. And uh, it's not an easy thing. It requires both exploring and it requires committing to some things. Because as I said, you, you can't really know you want to be a concert pianist until you're quite a ways down the road of being a pretty good pianist. Before you really know whether that's something you love. You don't learn to love something usually just by dabbling with it for a little while. You have to stick with it long enough to figure it out. And that's hard to do because uh, it, it takes time out of what feels like, oh, I don't have time to take a bunch of classes and a bunch of things. I, I need to be, you know, focused. I need to, I can't waste money. I can't waste time right now. I got to go, I got to, somebody's got to tell me what it is I'm supposed to want so that I can go forward immediately and, and, and in a focused way with my life. But most of us don't just, you know, want to stick with the answer we gave when we were six and somebody asked us what we wanted to be. And we said, I want to be a fireman, or I, I want to be a nurse, or I want to be a teacher, or I want to be a, you know, a a video game creator. Uh, We have to kind of re examine those questions on the basis of experience. I was having a conversation just a few minutes before we began tonight with, uh, with, with someone who that I was, you know, was kind of wrestling with this question. And when I asked her, well, you know, what have you done in your life that you've enjoyed the most so far? What's been meaningful to you? And she cited a, a, a job that she was involved with. And what is it about that job? You know, it, it can be different things for different people as to what it is about the job or the class that was really most meaningful to them. But we're trying to sort of figure that out over time. Um, I also remember that w- the research on, from some folks looking at Harvard, uh, uh, students over, over decades now, as they've gotten to people who are now, you know, old like me and are still asking them, what is it that's brought meaning and purpose into your life? The, the big thing that they found is that relationships are the, most consistently important thing in people's lives that brings a sense of well-being and happiness over time. Um, that and and having made a contribution in the world that they feel like made a difference and made a difference to other people. That's made some good in the world because other people's lives are a little better for something I've learned and contributed or some service I've provided or some uh, skill that I've character trait that I've exhibited and shown throughout my life that has allowed me to feel like my being on this planet makes a difference. It's, it's done some good for somebody. Because people are the ultimate currency in terms of what makes something worthwhile. It's whether it matters to a person, not whether it matters to a whale, although that can be important too, not whether it matters to a lamp. You know, uh, but whether it matters to people is kind of the ultimate thing that makes something worthwhile or not worthwhile. Does it create um, more peace, more happiness, more, more well-being, more uh, fulfillment to people? So are we developing our strengths is really an important thing. And then are we using those strengths to strengthen others to make a difference for good in the world? are some of the things that really can get us charged up about feeling like we're doing something that's worth the risk of failing. And uh, we will fail, we will mess up. And uh, sometimes I think we get apathetic because we are too afraid to fail. So we just sort of withdraw our energy and pull back and say, well, I don't really care about that. When really, it's a kind of a fear that maybe if I invest in this, I'll find out that I'm not good at it. And I don't want to find that out. Or I don't want to be that vulnerable. So I'm just not going to, I'm just not going to dig in. Um, but failure is a part of learning what we want. And it's always a part of growth and development. We don't just come into this life good at everything we do. So we, um, we have to learn those things and we have to be willing to get up and, and start over and, and try again and practice more and, keep doing things that are hard. And that includes the hard things like living the gospel or serving other people or figuring out what our sense of purpose and mission is in life. Um, So developing those strengths, developing our personal character, um, and and then using those things to, to develop relationships and to make a difference for good in the world are some of the things that really help us overcome that sense of apathy when we see the gospel helping us do those things and making those commitments and seeing the purpose and having the opportunity to develop those skills and those character traits and those, um, those, that experience base that helps us know what matters to us most.
1: As you were talking, I was just thinking how blessed I feel, uh, to be here with Jared talking with you and surrounded by people that, um, that love the gospel so much that have that have found things in the gospel that makes them um feel like they have a purpose that there are things for them to do that there are important um so I'm I'm I feel blessed right now to be one of those people that has have been able to see that um in the gospel and um I'm I'm also wondering about my friends that don't feel that way that don't feel like there are important things for them to do or that they're um, they're not finding meaningful answers or they just they don't know what they want. And so it's hard for them to find what they want if they don't know what they want. And I feel like it could be very challenging for leaders too to help them figure it out. Um, so my question for you is, and taking into consideration that you know, we're, we're on a, in a different generation right now. We, we face different challenges. We have different concerns that maybe older leaders. So what would you say to those leaders that are trying to help those YSAs, uh, young single adults to, to find a purpose, to find that there is something important for them to do? And what would you say to us as YSAs to be able to help other YSAs as well?
2: Well, it sounds like you've had some experience with being helped by people who were basically your own age as they began asking you questions about what was important to you, what mattered to you, teaching you things about what was important to them, giving you an example in the lives that they were living as missionaries of of being committed to something and uh, taking risks and trying hard things. And so I I, I think... Um, being curious about each other is a really important starting place. You know, I don't have all the answers and you don't have all the answers. But um, as we are curious about one another and about ourselves, as we begin asking ourselves the question, what do I really care about? What have been important experiences in my life? What have been moments when I have felt like life had meaning and purpose for me? Have I had any of those experiences? What's made life hard for me? And what have other people done that has been helpful to me can sometimes be an important guidepost for us in terms of what we what we have had experience with as being meaningful to us. You had these missionaries come into your life at a time when you were looking for answers, and it sounds like that that gave you some sort of a vision of uh, what what's one kind of thing that people can do. And now here you are kind of following up in your own way with some of the things that you saw them doing. It's risky to, to find purpose. It isn't just something that falls in your lap. Um, Another great quote that I've always come back to again and again in my life, there are a few, not too many of these that I remember. So, you know, distinctly, but this was Viktor Frankl, who was the wrote the classic text about man's search for meaning from a concentration camp in, uh, in world war two. And, um, and he, and he basically said, you know, you don't get to just ask life. What is the purpose of my life? Life asks you what will be the purpose of your life? And you are the one who has to answer that question. And, um, that's an interesting reminder to me that we don't just get to sort of throw up our hands and say, you know, who's got the answer? What's the purpose of life? Uh, Life is asking us, and we have to kind of look at our own life and say, what what will I do with this amazingly precious gift I've been given? Um, And it, it doesn't... I, I had an interesting conversation not too long ago with a man who was, you know, very clear that he was an atheist. He had no belief in God whatsoever. He didn't believe there was any higher power, any creation of of this earth. But he said the chances of us being here as living sentient beings on a planet that is, you know, one of a billion things floating around, billions and billions of things floating around in the universe is so astronomically um, impossible. You know, it's just so obscure. It's so ridiculous that we would even be here at all. That this is something that life, human life is amazingly precious. And so we don't even have to have a belief in God to recognize that life is, humanity is a precious thing. Each human life is an amazing experience that, that we have been, you know, brought into, and we can, uh, we can waste that time on foolish things and things that don't really matter, or we can make a decision that we're going to make our life stand up to the question, what is the purpose of your life in a way that matters to us and that we feel, okay, I, and this is my challenge is to figure out what, what will I do with this, one rare precious gift that I I have Um, even if I don't believe some person gave it to me um, I still I still get to decide what I'm going to do with it while I'm here let me let me make the decision to make the very very best of it those questions are not easy but uh, some of the things we know are that relationships and developing skills and using those skills and to live values that we have freely chosen as being important to us and to make a difference for good for other people are some of the things that over time seem to hold the test of time and and create for people a, a meaningful existence. A connection with nature, connection with something bigger than ourselves is another thing that we can define in lots of ways. But for many members of the church, that transcendent connection is with the spirit. And with that sense that there is something bigger than me, there is something out there that gives meaning and purpose to my life that knows more than I do, that I have come to trust, has answers for me and a purpose for me. I love the scriptures in Moses where the Lord says to Moses, I have a work for thee, Moses, my son. And I think as we come to know the Lord, my experience has been that he has a, a He does have a purpose for each of us. He wants with all his heart for us to know him and to come to know ourselves more deeply. And, um, and in order to do that, he created this opportunity for us to come to a place where we don't really know what it's all about. We don't have somebody just handing us the answers and we have to sort of decide for ourselves based on our own experience. What do I care about? What is meaningful to me? and what isn't. And we can help each other as we, uh, as we probe those questions and help each other talk about them and think about them and learn from our experience. But life is risky. And um, it's interesting to me that agency makes it risky. In our understanding of the purpose of life, uh, Satan didn't want to take the risk. He didn't want to, he he didn't want, you know, you think about the, the parable that Jesus told about the, the talents and the guy who gives his servant five talents and he makes it ten, and he gives the other guy two and he makes it four, and then he gives the other guy one and he he doesn't do anything with it. He he hides it in the ground someplace. And and the you know, the master in the story comes back and says, You could have at least given it to a bank, you know, and gotten some interest on this, on this money. Uh, you didn't even get me six percent, you know, or three percent. You you buried in in the ground, and I got nothing back for, for uh, for what I you know from from what I gave you. And I I think you know it, it is an interesting comparison because we can sort of get the notion that God sent us here to come back to Him in the perfect, pure, ideal state that we were in when we left Him. But that parable reminds me: no, He is. It's okay to take a risk and, and double your money. It's okay to take a risk and get a little bit of interest. It's not okay to just sit here and waste this precious time that you've been given. It's even it's even better to try to, to do something and to fail at it. And then learn from that and get back up and try again than to do nothing. And that gives me some hope that I need to get over my fears of, of doing hard things and being, you know, an idiot and looking stupid and failing at it. That's okay. But what's not okay is to just sit around and play video games all day and and waste the, you know, the talent that I've been given. Um, Unless I'm using that for, you know, some purpose that I, that I really care about and it matters to me. Jared, you're somebody I've always admired for being a risk taker. I think and a, a thoughtful person. Um, how did how did you learn that? How did you how did you acquire the courage to try to do hard things and to think hard thoughts?
0: Before I jump into that, I actually have a kind of reversal of almost the same question for you, which is, where do you start? Say, I'm trying to find methods to find out all these things about myself, find out who I am, in a sense, a divine identity. Where do you even start? That can be really overwhelming for a lot of people, I feel like.
2: Well, you've already started, you know, all of us have already started. We're alive and we know how to walk and talk and add and uh, read. And, you know, those are starts. And what are the stories that call to us? What are the experiences that we've had that have been um, the most uh, engaging that, that have gotten our attention in a way that makes life feel like, you know, I sort of lose track of time because I'm so engaged in this project as a way to start, but also really hard things can be a place to start. Um, what did I learn from this horrific loss? What did I learn from this difficult challenge? What did I learn from this really devastating failure Because um, we can learn, well, we can handle those difficult moments in one of two ways. Uh, theres I can't remember the man's name who's done some research on this. It's not coming right to my mind. But he found that there are sort of two kinds of stories that people tell themselves about things that have happened to them already in life. One is sort of contagion stories. This happened and then everything blew up. Everything got worse. Everything turned around in an awful way. And from then on, it was downhill is one of the ways we tell our story. But he found that people could tell almost identical stories in what he called redemptive stories, which is taking the same kinds of experiences and saying, yeah, that was, this was really hard. You know, my parents were getting a divorce. My my, I didn't get into the college. I wanted to, I, I came here as an immigrant. I didn't know the language. And, and as Cammie has done so beautifully shown us already, she's created a redemptive story. It wasn't, my parents got a divorce and I went to this foreign country and everything fell apart and was a mess after that. It was, I came here and, and even though it was really hard, um, some things happened that have changed my changed me and changed me for good that, um, that turned my life in a positive direction, or that I learned something from that has made me a better person, or that I feel really good about in how I handled it, even though at the time it was just incredibly hard. So those redemptive stories, when we can find a way to tell our story, looking for what we learned, or what we understood about life, or about ourselves, or about about challenges or difficulties, those redemptive stories are really an important thing in our resilience and in our ability to stick with hard stuff in the future. And in fact, he, he, you know, in his research, he found, and I'm so sorry, I can't remember his name right now. Um, In his research, he found that people who could tell a redemptive story about when I lost my job Found a new job more quickly, people who could tell a redemptive story about a really hard thing that they'd experienced, bounced back faster and moved on with more courage and, and more creativity into the future. So the ability to, we, we are the ones who decide what the meaning of that story will be, what the meaning of those events will be. We are the we can't change what happened in the past. But but it, it turns out we don't have to. We can change the meaning that we give what happened in the past and that we have control over. We can change that we are willing to try again, even though we failed the first time or that um, that it was difficult or that things didn't work the way we we wanted or expected. And when we create that redemptive story that sort of says, but I got up and I tried again, or but I got up and I decided I was never doing that again. So I did this instead or whatever it may be. When we change that story, we begin to change the meaning uh, that it has in our lives in ways that, that makes for something positive and not just something negative. So we can help each other write those redemptive stories by asking each other, well, did you learn anything from that that has that helped you in any way? Or how long did it take you to get to, get to a different place with that? Or what happened next? And, and you know where did you go from there? When we find ourselves in apathy and giving up, it's often because we haven't been able to figure out how to write that redemptive sort of story. Um, I think redemptive is an interesting choice of words uh, from from this individual who talks about this because we talk about the redemptive power of Jesus Christ that he has promised us through his atonement that no matter what happens to us here, He can turn it into a redemptive story if we will let him. He can use it for our good if we will let him. He can help us make a difference for good for other people if we will let him. He can help us um, find find a path forward. And um, he can do that because of the depth of his compassion for us exactly where we are. That gives us compassion for ourselves in that moment And that compassion helps us turn that story and say, I can do, I can, I can figure something out here.
1: Um, Wendy, you've talked about uh, redemptive stories and how it's, it's awesome when we take all those hard things and trials into good things, into blessings, because that's ultimately what they are. I feel like when we start looking at trials and challenges in our lives as blessings, um, we understand a little bit more the purpose of them, the purpose of of the plan of salvation, right? Um, so I appreciate that a lot because it's hard at the moment to see those hard things as blessings and things that in the future, we'll look back to and be very grateful that we had them. How, What? what is the relation between those redempti- redemptive stories and grit?
2: What would you say? I think the connection is that when we can make a story into a redemptive story, it gives us the courage to keep going and to try again. Uh, I love the work on that Carol Dweck has done on growth mindset, as she tried to figure out what gave people grit in a in a difficult situation. She was looking at children doing puzzles in school. And most of us have been exposed to some of her work. I think it's per- pretty pervasive in business and in, and in education, both at this point. But what she found was that the, the students who were willing to keep trying and, uh, and didn't think they were failing because they just thought they were learning. They stuck with those tasks and they, and they, you know, asked for a little clue or they, they tried a different approach or, or they uh, they they got help from the teacher, but they didn't want her to just tell them what to do. They they wanted the the teacher to give them a little bit of guidance, so they could because they wanted to do it do it themselves. They were willing to take on hard things because they didn't think they were failing. She was trying to figure out what you know what made people keep going when they were when they were failing, and what she discovered was they didn't think they were failing. They just thought they were learning. Um, I'm not there, you know. <laughs> I, I just don't like failing, and uh, and and I tend to kind of go quickly to oh man, I'm making a fool of myself here, but I'm trying really hard to learn. No, everything I do won't be perfect. Everything I do won't be great. I will fail a lot in this life, and if I'm not failing, I'm not really engaged. I love somebody who told me the other day that her her dad uh, would always ask them every night at dinner, okay, who had a who, what You know, what did you fail at today? That was that was his question. And he, that was, if you hadn't failed at something, you weren't trying hard enough, you know, which was the approach that he kind of took with them, which was kind of the opposite of the approach in my family, which was, what did you succeed at today? And if you failed at something, that was a problem, you know, that was, Oh, you weren't, you didn't try hard enough or you were over your head or you got, you know, you, you shouldn't have been doing that or something. But his approach was, that's what says you're in, in the game. Is if you're in it far enough to be over your head a little bit, and to keep trying and to practice more and to learn from that mistake, um, was the, was the goal. And uh, I think we're we're getting better at that in some in some regards, but maybe we have some work to do still in in the church in not seeing failure or um, weakness or uh, not doing something perfectly as as sort of a, oh, well, you know, something wrong with you. No, as I say, the Lord's parable is pretty clear. No, I I want you to go try, you know, even if you come back having lost the coin, that's better than having not tried to develop that talent, to develop that skill, to to learn something and and try something hard that might make a difference for good in the world. We have to know when to quit too. You know, we have to know when, all right, I've, Thrown enough enough after this one that maybe it's time to pull back and try something else, and that's another question for another day. But um, getting in there and 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 pitching and and swinging the bat is is important if we're going to get if we're going to get in place. The people who've had the you know what's what's it Babe Ruth who had the most uh, home runs had the most strikes, and um, we've, we've got to be willing to do both. Well.
0: One of the main things that I'm hearing over and over again is this concept of like failing forward, which is you fail, but you get up and you're still moving forward. Um, And I really like the fact that it's redemption. You're growing, you're learning. It's not like you're stagnating and you have to be perfect right now. And I feel like a lot of times, at least in YSA settings and other settings as well, it could be overwhelming. It could be really difficult. And a lot of leaders wonder, how can I even help? Or people that love them ask themselves, how can I help this person? And how, how would you say that leaders should approach writing a redemptive story with a YSA or with anyone else in their ward as well?
2: Great question. You know, I think sometimes we get so invested in the issue of how do I help someone? How do I serve someone? that it can become almost more about us, that I get to feel good because I know an answer they don't, or I have a strength that they don't, or I can, I can bring them what they need. Um, I, I, I'm trying to get over that a little bit in my own life, you know, and that's hard to do. Um, it, it does feel good to have the answers. Um, but I think a lot of times we are actually more helpful to each other when we ask more questions when we get more curious about what they're doing and why they're doing it, when we are asking questions like, you know, what have you tried? And uh, what have you learned from that? What else could you try? If you were to do that, you know, where would you start? Um, what obstacles might you face? Uh, have you had any experience with something like that before? What did you learn from that? And, and I think those are more empowering questions in some ways than, um, than just how can I help? I I noticed this, for example, with the brother of Jared, you know, that he goes to the Lord with this problem and the Lord says, well, you know, I I'll fix this one for you. I, you know, yes, air would be good. Let me see if I can solve that problem for you. But what do you want me to do about the problem you've got with light? And the brother of Jared doesn't know, but he goes and he tries something, you know, and, and I'm sure he's looking at this all the time thinking, this is ridiculous. You know, I'm making these crystals out of, you know, molting rock. And how is this ever going to shine? And, you know, maybe I don't know how this is going to work. You know, I have, he has no reference point for how this could happen, but he does what he can think of to do. And then the Lord kind of steps in at that point and helps with the rest. Sometimes the Lord steps in and helps them when there's nothing else we can do, and sometimes He says, "Back to the drawing board. Try something else." You know, but um, I love that the Lord doesn't just give us answers. Christ doesn't just give people answers. He asks. He asks them more about their situation. He gets them talking. He um, he asks them what they think. He asks them what they've tried. He asks them where they'd start, and he. He is trying to empower them. And they're like, we don't want to go back there. You know, everybody's mad. They're all fighting with each other. We don't want to no, We need to go back. We need to go back and see what we can do with this. And um, I think that is probably closer to what the Lord would have done in those kinds of situations uh, to, to see what else can we do here. And, and let's try again. So can we do that with each other?